Good morning, saints. So let's begin this morning by reading our scripture passage, which is at the very end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Our focus is on verses 5 and 6, but we're going to read beginning in verse 4 for context. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What we have here is a beautiful Trinitarian blessing or greeting. Please note the attributes, some of which we have Uh, examined. God is eternal. God is sovereign. How breathtaking it is to see what our Lord and Savior has accomplished for us through his suffering and by his blood. By God's grace, we will also be raised from the dead, conformed fully and finally to the image of God's dear son. We celebrate the various ethnicities present, not only in this room, but in any church. We rejoice that God has taken us from every nation and tribe and tongue and has placed us into his kingdom. What beautiful diversity there is in the body of Christ. Throughout eternity, we will raise our voices to the praise of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has freed us from the penalty and the power of our sin. Sin and death will not have the final word for any of us. Because Jesus is risen. Jesus has triumphed. And Jesus rules as King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice what he says at the end of what we just read. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a very intriguing pattern that we have seen throughout the New Testament. At the beginning of our series, we noted that many New Testament passages will declare the excellencies of God that he has in his essence but then ascribe to him the same. God is not lacking in any of his attributes or excellencies. It is the only reasonable response when considering all that God is and all that God by his grace has done for us to ascribe honor and glory to him. So this morning we ponder a very important question. In light of all that we have been considering, God's attributes, his excellencies, his glory, 
How do we glorify God in our lives? How do we bring glory to the one who is worthy of all glory and honor? Past voices are helpful here. Charles Spurgeon said, God does not need your strength. He has more than enough on his own. He asks for your weakness. He has none of that. What a beautiful statement. It's a reminder that God is sufficient in and of himself. And yet, he beckons us to him. More recently, A.W. Tozer Every ransom man owes his salvation to the fact that during the days of his sinning, God kept the door of mercy open by refusing to accept any of his evil acts as final. This morning I will give five very specific ways in which we glorify God in our lives. This list is not exhaustive, but it should flow from a heart of overwhelming gratitude in what God has done for us. So let's begin this morning with our mind. Well has it been said that the battleground is often, maybe always, in the mind. How we think, what we believe, how we build our worldview and our convictions, and where we park our mind throughout the day. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, says this. He tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Christian growth and maturity is uniquely called transformation. It's a process that we are, engaged, we are called to engage in, but God is the one who does the work. The key that I want you to see is that transformation or growth as a Christian is directly, intrinsically tied to our mind. The most important aspect of having your mind renewed is always in accordance with the straight edge of God's word. There are lots of philosophies and ideologies in the world that will pull us away from the truth of God. God's truth does not change. It is not amended from one generation to another. God's truth does not change because God is truth. Remember, Jesus said, you are truly my disciples if you abide or continue in my word. So I invite you to turn to the middle of your Bible to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. This is the first or one of the first passages that I memorized when I was a kid. My grandfather sat me down and said, I want you to learn this passage. And it has served me very well over the years. I want to highlight on ver verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates 
day and night. Notice how he wants us to engage God's word. Not in a passing way, but to read it thoughtfully, to reflect upon it. What that means is to digest the truth that we are reading and not, as James says, to merely be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. Let God do his work through his word in our minds and in our hearts. What truth is there for me to learn in what I'm reading? What truth is there for me to obey? The promises that are associated with this practice are noteworthy in Psalm 1. Our very lives will be built upon the solid rock of God's truth. When you look at the prayers in the New Testament, you will see a very definite pattern. Repeatedly, as the apostles pray for the saints, they pray that we will return or remember the basic elementary truths of the gospel. That we will not drift from them, but that we would be reminded of the truth of the gospel. You are loved unconditionally. God will never let you go. God will bring you safely to his heavenly shores. You are completely adopted into God's family. You do not need to prove your worth. You do not earn your keep. That is not how grace operates. Grace frees us in the deepest part of our soul. To serve God and to love others freely through the love with which he has loved us. Saints, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And as these truths sink deep into our mind and dominate our thinking, we are to encourage and exhort one another with these very truths of God. Now let's take a moment and talk about our heart. Biblically speaking, your heart is the seat of your will and your emotions, primarily your will. This is why it is so important to guard your heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says this, Above all else, Guard your heart, because from it is the wellspring of life. Train your mind in accordance with God's word, and guard your heart. It is so easy for us to be distracted or pursue other things than the Lord in an unhealthy way. We call that idolatry. I guard my heart by refusing to settle or refusing to chase after lesser things. With all the good that God has given me and all the beauty that he is in his essence, why would I chase after things that do not have lasting value? 
Why would I obsess over them? Why would I let my idle mind drift and ruminate about things that are not life-giving? Paul told the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then will we also appear with him in glory. My friends, that is the hope of the gospel. That is the comfort and the encouragement of the gospel. This is not our home. We are just passing through. Christ is not merely number one in our life. He is our life. Our union with him is such a beautiful truth. Let us spur one another on to have our mind renewed by God's truth and to guard our hearts so that we may freely live for Christ and love those around us. Now, those first two are general principles as far as how we live our life that glorifies God in a way that glorifies God. Now let's be specific regarding ways that we can glorify God with our life. Remember, the mindset precedes the action. Number three, it might be one that you would not expect. We glorify God by being generous. God places a high value on generosity. It is a prevalent theme in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. This is a key passage to see God's heart regarding generosity. In chapter 8, Paul talks about taking up an offering for the Jewish church, the church in Jerusalem... That is going through a famine. He's speaking to the Gentiles. It is inspiring to see how the Gentile churches responded and how generous they were despite their own poverty. It's in this passage that we see the phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. He is more concerned about your attitude and generosity than he is the amount that you actually give. Paul commends the Macedonians for insisting on the privilege of giving to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And the truth is, and he acknowledged this, the Macedonians at the time themselves, they were hard pressed with a severe test and a trial of affliction themselves. However, in that severe affliction, they insisted on the privilege of their participation. They were anxious to be generous. But at the same time, they employed thought in the process. They did not just give an, in the moment of emotion. But it says they first gave themselves to the Lord and then contributed to the relief fund for the Jewish Christians as they could. They lived in extreme poverty. But you see, this is the very Christian mindset. There's something deep inside of us that wants to help other people 
even when we don't have the best life ourselves. Because God has put a love inside of us that naturally flows to those around us. The most beautiful thing that Paul says about the Macedonians and their generosity is the joy that they had in giving to others, even in their own affliction. There's a beautiful statement that Paul makes in the context of being generous. It's chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It is a profound statement. Paul is making a gospel application to the concept, to the act of generosity. You and I have received so freely from the Lord. We have received grace upon grace. Our example is the Lord Jesus Christ. He became poor for our sake. So he could make our lives rich in him. There's a remarkable statement that Paul makes when speaking to the Gentile believers at the end of this passage regarding generosity. Here's what he says. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. They will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity. They is a reference to the believers in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers. They will glorify God because of the obedience and the generosity of their now Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. Saints, let us therefore have the same mentality with our finances and with our resources. Be generous. Now let's take the same disposition towards one another of being mindful of one another and let's make this our fourth specific way that we glorify God in our lives and that is to simply be mindful of our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a well-known verse that we'll develop the context for. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whatever you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The truth is very clear. We can and we should glorify God in everything that we do, in the big things and in the little things. But the context here is very important. What he is speaking to specifically in this passage is differences of conscience, if you will. Certain believers differ with with others regarding what their conscience allows them to do or or not to do. Some might be considered a weaker brother in Christ in connection to their conscience. Friends, we are all growing in the Lord. We all need to train our conscience on God's truth. 
Some of us have an overactive conscience that plagues us. Some of us need to up our game. The Word of God brings clarity and the Word of God brings freedom. But as we are all on this journey together, we need to be mindful and sensitive to where each of us are in our walk with the Lord. Even in certain circumstances, you have freedom to partake in something, but in consideration of your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, who might feel otherwise, it would be better in that moment to not put a stumbling block before them. It's in that sense that I say, let's be mindful and sensitive to one another. Our liberty in Christ is a beautiful thing. But we want to make sure that our liberty in Christ does not exasperate those in a different place in their walk with the Lord. In verse 24 of that chapter, he says this. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That is a very good principle to live by. To be others conscious. To be sensitive to their needs, to be sensitive to their weaknesses, and to do everything we can to encourage them and to build them up in Christ. This is really what the New Testament tells us over and over again in so many different ways. Paul told the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In fact, the more I become mindful of my brother and sister in Christ, that becomes a fantastic gauge of my Christian growth. I'm becoming more like Christ. As I consider others before I consider myself. Now, fifth and finally, the specific way in which we glorify God is in terms of our testimony. With this one, we're going to be quite specific. We glorify God when we maintain a testimony amongst our unbelieving friends and with our fellow believers that is consistent with our confession. Peter said this in first Peter chapter two, verse 12. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is A remarkable statement. The day of visitation is best understood as the day of judgment. It could also be judgment that God brings in a temporal sense in their life. Being a Christian and living according to God's truth will necessarily and often bring pushback. And persecution from those around us. Without question, that persecution looks different in different places and in different times. 
But the truth is, when we live out our biblical convictions, it will not always be welcomed by those around us. So if you are known to be a Christian in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, your school, wherever, you don't want your conduct to undermine your testimony. To have others be able to look in and easily see that you are not living your life with integrity. No one should ever rightly point to us, to you and to me, and to say, yes, <coughs> we are Christians, but I never knew it by their actions. When judgment falls, they should glorify God in agreement in that moment and say, yes, look at the grace of God, evident and manifest in their lives. So let's be more specific with a passage that says something very similar and it is specifically in relation to our sexual ethic. It is no surprise that our culture does not exactly point us to walking in purity before the Lord. In fact, the prevailing sense is do what feels good in the moment. Whatever makes you happy, perhaps they might add, so long as it's consensual. But God's word is very clear regarding keeping ourselves in this regard for our husband or wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. I will read verses 18 and following. <clears throat> Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now here is the principle behind what he is saying. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought for, with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your or in your body. <coughs> Excuse me. We glorify God in our sexual ethic and behavior. We know that the Holy Spirit lives in us. Our very body is the temple of God. You see, the pagan world at this time basically had little regard for the physical body. It was essentially a throwaway. It didn't matter what you did. But Paul is reminding us that yes, it does matter. We glorify God even in what society might consider to be a private matter. How we carry ourselves both with believers and with unbelievers matter. Our testimony matters. Let's endeavor to glorify God in how we conduct ourselves in every way that he is magnified and glorified. Saints, there are many more specific ways in which we can glorify God in our life. These are but five specific um, examples of how to do that. 
let us express our gratitude to the Lord and resolve to honor him in all that we say and in all that we do. Because it is the only reasonable response to his excellencies, to his attributes, to his great love for us, to the blood that was shed for you and for me, and for that eternal hope that we cherish in our hearts. Would you bow and prepare your hearts for prayer? Take just a moment of reflection. We've spent a few months looking at very specific ways or aspects of God's glory. Over and over again, we are called to live in light of that glory. Our response to who God is. We confess that we are not our own. That we were bought at a price. And that is the very precious blood of Christ. Let us encourage and exhort one another. To glorify God. In all that we say and do. We always take a moment to speak to the very heart of why we're gathered here this morning. And I realize on a holiday weekend, we have lots of people traveling home. We have lots of people visiting still. We don't want to take this part for granted. The New Testament is very, very clear. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became sin for us. He laid his life down. He suffered the very wrath of God at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was more than just a random teacher of old. Jesus is the son of God who kept God's perfect law without fault. He obeyed God in everything. He himself was without sin. And he died in the place of sinners. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you pass from death to life. There is no amount of good works or efforts that you could ever perform to make yourself acceptable to God. You cannot get rid of your record, if you will. But God's grace, his love is on full display. His provision is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, the Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your riches in mercy in Christ. 
Thank you for the fellowship of believers. Thank you for all the ways that we can support and help one another. We give you thanks for all the blessings you have given in our lives. We do not for a moment take our freedoms in the United States casually. We thank you for the comforts, the creature comforts that we have here. You have blessed us and we give you thanks. More than anything and above all else, we thank you for your indescribable gift of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider scripture, perhaps on ourselves moving forward on this topic, we will see many ways in which we are called to glorify you. We don't want to look at those as another list to do because that would be burdensome. But oh Lord, give us excitement and a zeal to be quick to do those things which bring glory to you particularly when it's evident to those around us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And Lord, we specifically want to take a moment and pray for our brothers and sisters and so many others who are traveling home at this very moment. Please watch over them and bring them back to us safely. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.